Welcome back to Rebuilders. My name is Liddy and I'm here with Mark Sayers. How are you going, Mark? Um, I'm good. I'm, I'm fired up. To You're hit fired some up. Rich veins of, co- of content. <laughs> uh, yes, we were likening the podcast to Wagyu beef before. Yes, yes. So, yeah. You know. Which is a natural association that I think most people had as they tuned in today. Yeah, I imagine yeah. so. It was certainly where I, my brain went. So. Mm. We all know that my brain is like everyone else's. Uh, Okay, so we were just talking off air about we're kind of, what, three or four weeks in now to, I guess, the new normal as the government seems to be calling it. And what's interesting, I think, is in, in my immediate sphere, I don't know anyone who actually has coronavirus, but... Pretty much everyone I know is feeling the impacts of this. Yeah. So, um, yeah, we were sort of talking about how it's not actually just a medical crisis. Mm. This is a social crisis. Yeah. This is an economic crisis. This is a crisis in all facets of our lives. Mm. Yeah. How are you kind of seeing it impact you, Mark? Yeah, well, I, I think what's really interesting is there was this initial global um, hit where, you know, we spoke about, I think on previous podcasts, how this was unprecedented, that the whole globe was experiencing something simultaneously. Mm. Um, and there's still elements where that's definitely true. Um, what's happening, I think, is it's playing out differently as it hits different social and cultural and political systems. And, uh, uh, you know, Bruno Mac, I was, I was watching my day off um, the Jaipur Literary Festival from were. Delhi, India, <laughs> purely to get rich Wagyu beef content um, <laughs> for this podcast. Um, the reason I was watching that is they had Bruno Makesh on, um, the author, former Portuguese politician, one of the, I think, the best interpreters of our moment. And he made the point that what the coronavirus has done, it's come like a shock and um, it's accelerated the already existing dysfunctions or strengths of, of nations and cultures. So, for example, China has gone even more authoritarian. Um, Viktor Orban in Hungary this week, you know, essentially made himself a dictator. But he said, you know, Markesh said Hungary was already heading in that direction. Mm. Um, the US, this went into their politicized, very polarized reality where we've got different responses in different states politically, which is really unusual. Looking from this perspective here, um, and Makesh said it's almost a descent more into unreality where it's being played out like a disaster movie uh, in some of the press conferences. Um, and in some ways, you know, I guess taking his metaphor further, it's like the coronavirus hits you, but the pre existing or they're called, we all know this term now, comorbidities that you have, that if you have heart disease, if you're a smoker, and they're they're even saying potentially if you live in an area with high air pollution, that it's going to get you worse. Um, And it's the same for our political and social um, realities. I mean, it's interesting here in Australia, um, you know, I think you see the value of um, good government and, you know, our good health and, and social net. Yes. Um, I, had, I was on a podcast, the Danish podcast last week, and, um, you know, we were talking about, you know, what happens if Australia and Denmark, who have sort of stronger political systems and social, so, social uh, safety nets, what if we sort of come out better? What does that mean? You know, will renewal happen if people are just like, yeah, we, we were able to deal with this in ways other countries weren't? Yes. Um, but I think where, you know, in that conversation I took it was, 
whilst we may deal with the medical crisis, there's a whole bunch of other, you know, recalibrations. I mean, this is a medical crisis and that's what's hitting us at the moment. Um, It's also going to be a tech disruptive thing. So in a sense, what was already happening with tech will accelerate a lot. Can you give an example? Um, Online shopping. Um, is already changing Um, you know you could see things like um, you know instead of public transport the um, automated cars um, already are looking more you know there's a thing like I don't want to get an automated car I'm happy going on the train you know Um, but then all of a sudden what if the infection's out there um, and then you know Uber sends you a driverless car that is that cleans itself after every journey and you're not with anyone in the car and this thing's still around in two years, would you, you're probably going to jump on it. Yeah. So there's stuff you would say no to technologically in the last era. I mean, it's interesting that, um, you know, there was a lot of um, hesitancy around, uh, I guess, some of the data stuff before 9-11. And then once 9-11 happened and people saw that, hang on, I'm willing to let, give over some of my privacy in order to feel protected, I think we'll see a, a, a similar thing here uh, happening. I mean, you could see, you know, your your DNA and your data um, merge um, and your health. So, for example, you know, if I travel to the United States or, um, well, I traveled to, you know, Kuala Lumpur recently and you put your thumbs down, that's because I've got a biometric passport which looks at me and puts me on yes. a, a, a database of terrorists. Well, I'm not, sorry, I'm, I'm going to just I'm not on a database of terrorists. Thank you um, for clarifying. But checks that I'm not on a database of terrorists. Gotcha. You know? And there's this whole, you know, AI run in the background by organizations like the NSA and so on. Now, that could then merge with your, your medical records. So what happens if, you know, Great Britain says, well, we're going to start taking people in again in two years, but we want access to Australia's medical records. And we want to know that Mark Sayers has in the week before he's flown been tested and he doesn't have the coronavirus or that he's already had it. Um, that's just some examples that you'll see, which are going to, I think, have a, have a dis, you know, and some of those could also be solutions, you know. Yeah, okay. Um, these could actually help us fight this virus with technological advancements, but there are always, always going to be social implications as well. Um, this also is an economic story. Um, you know, we're hitting insane numbers <laughs> economically um, that are going to present a possibly hard recession, possible Great Depression style yes. economic event. And that hasn't really hit yet. There's been job losses um, and already there was weakness in the economy, which this is exposed. Um, what's really interesting is local politics has been absolutely transformed. Um, mm-hmm. People all of a sudden are totally interested in what their local politics is doing, their province, their state, their region, their city, um, their nation. Um, your most important people in your life are, you know, for me at the moment and us, yeah. our most important people are our premier of our state yes. and our prime minister. Like, whereas, you know, six months ago it felt like Trump or Someone or Xi Jinping had more influence possibly than our local Australian leaders, but yeah, that doesn't so feel true. like that anymore. No. Um, I think there's a whole geopolitical move happening at the moment. Um, there is a, a real advantage being taken of this crisis. You're seeing um, hot rhetoric growing between the US and China, um, Russia sending troops into an EU nation in Italy to posture, uh, Turkey, you know, making moves. So you're seeing a, a new geopolitical social order, which what does globalization look like when it is digitally happening, but we're all stuck in place in our countries? Yeah. Like no one's worked that out yet. If anyone tells you they know what is going to happen with that, they're dreaming. Like that <laughs> reality is, is we haven't even grasped that yet. 
And then I think lastly, social, that, you know, there's a tremendous social change happening. We were just also chatting before as we were setting up um, the new reality. We're all going for walks in the morning or jogs. Yeah. And when someone comes towards you, where perhaps we would walk on the same path. Um, look, at the not, yeah, look, look at the ground and not have eye contact. Now we're sort of taking a meter and a half step and smiling at everyone. Yeah. It's really interesting. And I, I've been doing that. I've noticed older people started it. And I did it this morning with a sort of young guy. You know, and normally, you know, guys bumping into each other, you know, there's almost this like standoffish thing. And I thought, I'm just going to do it. I'm just going to smile at this guy. And he, and he gave me this big beaming smile yeah. back. That's a new social reality. That's a very small one. But this is going to change things socially. Um, and, and maybe that's a good place to help people pick up. Because this, again, too, this is why we're doing this regularly. There's going to be so much stuff to talk about. Yes. Um, but I just want to talk about one social change that I think is really key that I think is happening. Um, and I think that's really around the issue of freedom. Now, I've had a few people contact me and ask me about this because that's a real feature of um, Reappearing Church, the book I wrote, where one of the things that I pointed out was one of the spiritual and social, or it's a social issue that flows into the spiritual, mm -hmm. is that people have an absolute abundance of freedom. Yes. Um, we have, uh, and I don't know if you remember, um, I think I first did it in a sermon at Red where I had these buckets. I didn't actually have buckets, but I had a, I had a graphics of these various buckets. And um, humans, you know, I argued to have a life of meaning um, need to have a fill in each of these three buckets. Bucket number one was community. We need, we're social creatures. Mm. We need um, to actually connect with others, to feel loved, to feel known, to um, have a social support network. Um, secondly, um, we need meaning. We need to feel that what we're doing is of purpose, that we're mm. not just random cosmic accidents and that, um, that you know, there's Viktor Frankl's you know, famous book, Man's Search for Meaning, that, that we're driven by a greater um, story. Yes. Um, and then the third uh, bucket was freedom and that... Um, that we also need some freedom to think our own thoughts, to to uh, not be oppressed by others, to have all our freedoms taken mm. away. Now, different cultures throughout history have had different levels in those buckets. Um, uh, there, are, there are cultures which have had large amounts of community, but then very low levels of freedom. Yes. Um, and, you know, people have been oppressed and in that oppression, their freedom is removed. But then one of the offsets is they actually gain a sense of community going through a shared common struggle. Um, you have communities where there's huge amounts of uh, uh, community um, and community, so they're not necessarily um, uh, having freedom taken away by um, an oppressive regime, but just that the social strictures are so, so strict that you have very little individual freedom. So my argument was where the West was at, and, and particularly I think of you know, Red and its ministry and I guess a lot of the churches around us was creating, um, you know, helping people understand the reality in which we were ministering in, which was that people's community was dropping to record low levels, yes. um, the atomization of, of individualism that was occurring, um, that whole cities had been built around a sort of form of individualism. Um, that uh, we were finding meaning disappearing. Um, people were finding an, an increased sense of meaninglessness. And, and we've noticed, we've spoken before about the fact that we just noticed in the last three or four years, people turning up to Red who are like, I've got no background in faith. Yeah, uh, I'm meaning hungry. Um, but then what we were dealing with was that 
freedom bucket was overflowing. Um, we had incredible amounts of freedom unseen in human history. We had this economy which was stagnating, but then provided us with this sort of super abundance. You can download any show. Yeah. Um, you can go to Spotify and the old paradigm of here's my 20 albums or 300 albums or 12 albums. Now at Spotify, I can, I can, I can get anything. Yeah. Um, I tried explaining that concept to my mom the other day. And she's like, because oh, I don't have that album at home. I was talking about some 90s Irish revival music, uh, which we'll come back to in another thing. But yeah, couldn't grasp that concept. Yes. Yeah, it's really interesting. It, yeah. Well, it's a totally different framework, but mm. it's normative for a lot of people. Um, there was this sense that you can do what you want to do. You can reinvent yourself. You can take on any identity. You can move around the world. You can change jobs. You can re-educate. You can wear a teapot on your head and call it something. Um, Did that yesterday. Good, good. I well, did. <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully book it in next week. Mm. Um, but what happened was that when you have an abundance of freedom and then a lack of meaning and community, I said that's a recipe for anxiety. Mm-hmm. Um, so you've got no guidance um, to this point where all of a sudden you get in front of Netflix and you're like, I want to watch something tonight and, and you, you find yourself 40 minutes late and you're still scrolling and then there was this panic, like it's getting to nine o'clock, I was going to watch a movie um, or what do I do with my life? And and you become paralyzed. You know, I think Barney yeah. Schwartz read a book called, it was around choice anxiety. Yeah. yeah. Um, so the interesting thing about during that time, and I've reflected on this a lot. I was that that was very much the dynamic that we were trying to do ministry and mission into. And just in the last few weeks as this has hit, I've just been wondering in this moment of, I guess, self-reflection, of, did I, did we fall into a kind of chaplaincy to that culture? Yeah. Um, you know, really what drives that, that world of, of freedom is the generation of wants. Consumerism mm-hmm. is about generating wants. Advertising, which I studied, um, can be great and have this positive um, outcome where if Daniel, our intrepid sound man, is looking for a shovel, I show you the best shovel you can buy because you want a shovel, I want to sell you a shovel, it's a win-win. Um, in its weaker moments, advertising can fall into Daniel wants a shovel, but I'm actually going to sell you a wonderful new teapot hat Um, that you never knew you wanted but inside of you there is this lack of meaning and you're looking for meaning so I exploit that or I exploit even your sense of community and I have an advertisement on TV where you know there's a man who's just looking for a shovel but there's more in life there is a fantastic teapot hat that he can find which gives him a fantastic group of attractive wonderful friends and who are also wearing teapot hats yes it's all about you get to be part of that community exactly Mm. the teapot hat community um, who we deeply respect uh, on this podcast um and um so, so so what's interesting is that you know the question i've asked is at times did i fall into doing a ministry of chaplaincy to the kingdom of wants and you know i think about so much of the ministry i've done in the last few years in these various post-christian cities and 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 richard florida wrote a book called the creative class where you know, or you wrote about the creative class, that our cities were being transformed as these sort of young adults moved into them in these creative industries 
and the cities were transformed. But then I think in the last two years, I've walked around these cities going, man, there's this lack of connection. There's a lack of meaning. There's an abundance of restaurants and cafes and opportunities and biking trails and ways to change your identity. Um, and I think for a long time, I was asking the question, you know, how do I spiritually form people in these places? Yeah. You know, how do I sort of take Dallas Willard and put it into these contexts? And, you know, I think there's a lot of truth in that. And I love Willard and I love that stuff. But I think where I got to in the last couple of years was like, I don't think this is going to crack it. <laughs> no. And, you know, I think my sense of, asking more for, from God of an awakening, of a renewal, a revival was what I was doing wasn't going to work. Um, and that and, kind of comes back to that crisis point. Yes. You know, like it's not going to shift without a crisis. No. Yeah. And and I think that how I pitched that potential crisis was as an individual crisis. Yeah. So when the, when the individual realizes their lack of meaning, when they realize their lack of community, their dizzying fear in the in an over full tank of freedom mm. that they'll individually turn back to god and enough people do that we're going somewhere but i think what's radically changed because many of us are still on that setting and you know there are many churches which that's just the norm and in the midst of a crisis comes the opportunity to rethink and recalibrate mm -hmm. um, and i think the smartest people in different industries at the moment and the wisest people are actually learning how to recalibrate in the midst of this there's a tragedy going on medically there are people losing their lives there's an economic uh, tragedy there's a tragedy possibly to continue to outplay even as this hits places like the middle east and africa um, which could be even far worse um, but in the midst of that, holding that intention, there is an opportunity in the midst of crisis to recalibrate and to renew. Mm. And I think one of the things that we need to, one of the paradigm shifts we need to make is all of a sudden you have people who have moved from a dynamic of living in a world of wants to now finding they're living in a world of needs. Yes. To give a really basic illustration of this, um, as many of us have been around the world, there has been a lack of toilet paper. Now, in the pre-COVID-19 toilet paper world, as with a, a three kids and um, a family where, you know, the amount of toilet paper used in my house before we had kids has exponentially grown. Um, so I worked out that if you look on the price tags of toilet paper, and you, it tells you how many cents per sheet, yeah. which is really helpful. So instead of like, they try and trick you. Because there's ones in the middle rung. There's ones at the top. There's ones with pictures of fluffy dogs on them. There's the recycled ones appealing to your altruism. There's the sort of luxurious ones appealing to your sense of I wrote luxury. about this in a uni assignment oh, a wow. number of years ago. Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. Um, and then I just thought, I'm just going to, okay, I'm now got these three kids. I got to pay the bills. So I'm just going to look what... What is the biggest bang for my buck I can get? And so I buy every week to, to cut through that, that choice anxiety and overabundance of freedom. Um, and I'm just going to um, go for, I would stand there. I would, I, this took me months to work out, you know, like calculating this. And I would stand there, and, not months. I wasn't there for months, literally. But, you know, if I was like trying to work out. This guy's still the, in the, yeah, still in the aisle. He's yes. still staring at the toilet paper. He's still there. He's the CCTV, CCTV footage of me standing there for months. No. Um, so I worked out, yeah, what's the most sheets I can get for my dollar, right? So that's how I cracked this thing. But you see people standing there. What do I want? Oh, do I really want to carry that massive one? Do I look like an idiot? Okay. So then all of a sudden <laughs> the toilet paper goes. The toilet paper goes. And, and there's no toilet paper, which was shocking. 
you know, like this shocking thing of like, it's gone. Okay, wow. And then everyone's like, you know, using less <laughs> toilet paper. We're trying to live in this new toilet paper world. Uh, you've got people who are, you know, bidet became this huge search. Japanese bidet makers are apparently, you know, rocking at the moment. I was reading about that. Yeah. Anyway, so then I go to the supermarket on Saturday, got there early and um, went to one. There was none there. Um, so like, oh, we, we need toilet paper. Went to another one. And I walk around the corner and like Indiana Jones discovering some ancient relic hidden deep in some temple of doom. There is just this complete full massive wall of toilet paper. Now, what was so fascinating is I had all my brand calibrations in my head of what I usually got. There's one brand. It's just got this black label. Like I, they make, they just, we've just gone communist. <laughs> like, and you know, what? it was magnificent. And I'm just like, Yes. And I just didn't even think, and I just reached and I just grabbed it and just like, you know, like a conquering, you know, Spartan held it above my head in <laughs> triumph. Um, and, and the people on the CCTV are like, oh yeah, he's back. No, no, that was, others were doing the same thing. It was a communal, it was a communal moment of great meaning as my freedom was diminished <laughs> and, and, and we, we, our needs. But I went from want to need. In a yeah. really practical thing. Like, I didn't care what brand it was. I just grabbed that sucker. Like, yes, I can get toilet paper versus which toilet paper do I get? And that's a silly um, uh, analogy in some ways. But it's actually, there's a truth. There's, a, there's this bit of, we've gone from, where shall I go this weekend? Yeah. Who shall I see? What shall I do? What should I be doing? Should I go to that festival? Should I travel there? To now just like, I wouldn't mind just having a face-to-face conversation with someone. Yeah. And I, I think you kind of see that in that moment you were talking about before when you walk down the street and we were talking about this before we started recording, and in the past you don't engage, you look at the ground, you look away because you don't need community because you've created it for yourself and you've got your freedoms to do that. But now you have to walk around because we are socially distancing, but you engage yes, because you want community, you want to connect with somebody else, you yes. need connection because we now are recognizing that we are distant from one another. We yeah. need human connection. Yeah. And, and, you know, I thought like it was interesting that Britta Makesh comment about, you know, he made a comment America when this crisis has come in a sense pushed into a greater sense of unreality. Us in Australia and possibly other people in countries can look at that and go, yeah, we see that. And I guess a number of Americans might feel that as well. But in a sense, we had our own unreality. Like, like there was an unreality that you could live a life where you sort of get by without community or you just have some friends when you want to do something with them. So you, it's people and friends and community for the sake of the wants. And actually you ditch them. If they stop you achieving more freedom, you ditch them, you know. Mm. So, you know, your auntie's sick in hospital, but there's a great festival one you want to go to, you know. Um, but now what we're forced to do is now we've flipped from wants mode to needs mode is we actually have to build. So that that nodding and smiling at people is actually rebuilding social trust mm. and social cohesion and connection. And you've seen people like in their streets putting little notices saying, hey, if you need help, if you're an older person, I can go and get rice for you. Um, the person in your street who has a chicken and has eggs all of a sudden becomes a much more valuable member of your community. And we're seeing actually this rebuilding where, hang on, we realize we need this stuff. You know, I, I saw a comment on Twitter this morning where someone just said, um, they're talking about life after this, and they said they've never had as many good talks with their parents 
in the last couple of weeks than in the last few years because they're yeah, just on wow. Zoom and it's just face-to-face. Let's just talk versus we'll come over and we'll do something else and we're watching a TV whilst trying to cook a barbecue and doing all these other things. There is this rebirth of understanding our needs and also understanding our needs in that employment. You know, like the whole thing of people would just leave jobs because they were bored, you yeah. know. Um, and now it's like there are people who are like, I just desperately want any job. Um, uh there's this sense of even our health, which we took for granted, now mm. is super protective. So we're moving from this key, this world of you know wants to needs. And to bring up just a, another comment that Bruno Marquesh made, he made this really interesting comment that the Enlightenment and Western culture was all about moving from a world which was in fear of nature. You go back to, say, the 14th century when the Black Plague came through Europe and you read uh, from that period People were profoundly afraid of nature. Yeah. Uh, Martin Luther had his moment of, of sort of um, transformation, walking through a forest and there was lightning and a storm and he was petrified. I don't get that petrified of storms because I can go inside or jump in my car. Mm. You know, perhaps I wouldn't walk across a large field with a metal umbrella. But I'm like, you know, I, I, I've literally got an app where I can look at where the storm is coming. So Makesh said the story of modern Western culture is the story of humans gaining freedom from nature. Mm. So there are lots of people in the world who live under the, you know, live under the the nature, if you like, because they are medically fragile. They are economically fragile from floods. Um, they, They understand that human nature can actually be quite brutal at times. The unreality that perhaps we were living is that we beat nature. And then when you beat nature, you start to see yourself as a god. And so two things have happened. The first thing is, and we've seen these these close-up in Australia, we had huge, unprecedented bushfires in January in Australia to the point where, you know, when I, I remember going out for dinner in, in January with Trudy and we, we parked the car and it was just toxic smoke everywhere. You couldn't mm. even see. And it was just like coming in now. That was nature coming in and it didn't feel as free but we could sort of still go apart now this 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 ultimate symbol of the power of nature a bacteria that can get everywhere that we can't see or a virus that we can't see uh, is nature now taking our freedom nature has struck back big time okay so you mentioned that this is uh this requires a bit of a social recalibration so what is what are the social things that need recalibrating if nature is limiting our freedom yeah. Well, I think this is actually a good thing because humans, as I said, have that tendency, which we see from the beginning of Scripture, to go beyond their station in the created order and to see themselves as you know demigods. Um, and it's interesting, like I had an interview with John Ralston Saul, a Canadian thinker, and he said that what's interesting about this virus is, you know, we had this idea that humans were citizens. That's what the other, you know, the first stage of the modern world, because in a sense, we had to band together to find freedom from nature. And we created nations and the French Revolution created, you know, citizens. And, you know, we've understood that. And the citizen, you know, had to be prepared to give up some of their freedom for the benefit of the nation. But then really the mode that we've flipped into is the consumer. And the consumer um, doesn't really have to do anything. They ask what can be done for them. Mm. And, you know, they might have to do jury duty every now and then or something. Um, But really, the nation's there to do something for you. The corporations are there to do something for you. Government is to serve you. The world is to serve you. Entertainment is to serve you. 
And that bled into the church. You know, we did have older generations who almost had that citizenship concept around churches who would be on mm-hmm. church boards, they'd serve, they'd get involved. You know, there was this whole raft of, of energy within the Christian church around people who brought that citizenship idea of previous generations into the church. But then we've shifted now into this crisis. Like, like I think we have to recognize that before COVID-19 happened, we were in a profound crisis in the church mm. where people came increasingly regular worship was coming every six weeks. That was simply not sustainable. And people would just move from this church to that church and whatever. And, you know, we've talked a lot about the Barna research and resilient disciples and how the majority of people sitting in churches, you know, in the millennial age group are, are not living biblical lives or, or have biblical worldviews. Mm. Um, but part of the problem is that reactively we could understand that and then get into this almost codependent relationship with Christian consumerism where we were then still providing stuff for them, making it more yes. attractive, giving them more, like feeling like we've got to then get into this exchange of consumer yeah. goodies. You know, we promised them stuff. And that's where, you know, I think we did fall possibly, you know, I really am really searching my heart. Like, have I done that? Have, have I fallen into being a chaplain to, you know, a more sophisticated form of creative class consumer Christianity? Yeah. Um, but... I think there's a profound moment for recalibration and renewal as we switch to needs because with needs, we recognize our limitations. We actually have a better map of reality, mm. leaving behind the unreality of the previous era, COVID-19, which does seem unreal because it feels like a movie, but perhaps actually what if it's more real than what was existing before? Mm. And it means we then as leaders have to take a different kind of leadership where it's a lot easier to actually deal with people who know that they need help. <laughs> 100%. Yeah. And I would say that the, 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 the Christianized version of what John Ruslan Saul is saying, because what he was saying is, oh, sorry, I don't think I finished the complete point there. He said that we had this idea that we were citizens, then we were consumers, but he's now saying the government are like, you've got to act like citizens again. Yeah, okay. So you're seeing that tension. I mean, we just were talking, we just got a te- text message from the Australian government, which says coronavirus stay home this easter new modeling shows social distancing helps us to flatten the curve of new coronavirus infections and save lives that is appealing to me not as a consumer that is appealing to me as a citizen yes and i think it's right because what we've learned is this model of radical individualism where we can just do what the heck we want as consumers actually in reality and in nature and in the created order has tremendous effects on other people Mm -hmm. And those first days when we saw things like the government saying stay home and then people were just going for huge, you know, beach parties on, on Bondi Beach or whatever. And you saw that around the world, Miami Beach. You saw that in parks in the UK, um, you know, where what that was was a collision between that idea of citizenship and consumerism. Um, and so Russell Saul is saying all the government's now like we want you to be cons- citizens, but we've actually been treating you like consumers. Yes. <laughs> like, so there's a recalibration that even governments are seeing. But the, the Christian version of that, which we need to step into, is, is again speaking and, and working with people who not as religious consumers, but as disciples. Yeah, okay. Now, lots of people would hear that and go, yeah, I've been trying to do that, Mark. And I would say the same thing. But you know what I'm really asking at the moment? Like, was I fully? Yeah. Or and could you fully? Could you? And now do I have a choice? Yeah. And what if the gift in this crisis is I don't really have a choice now Mm. because, you know, there is this need now and in the midst of that need, people are realizing their need 
not just for toilet paper or job security or medical security, but actually there's an invitation in this moment to actually step into our truest of needs, mm. which is actually our sufficiency in God. Yeah. And, you know, you look at this moment, which, you know, I think is like a night, like a wilderness and God used for the people of God, taking them out of the captivity of Egypt into the wilderness uh, for 40 years, that in the midst of that, that wilderness was actually a profound educational formational tool for sufficiency in God. Now, we were trying to do formation previously and this sort of chaplaincy to the consumer culture of wants. We were trying to do formation but in a sense, the theory was right, but how we were doing was informationally. Yeah, okay. The new reality means, yes, formation still needs to happen, but now it's actually happening in real time. This yeah. is from the military academy where you're learning the, how to do a war to actually in the mud and blood of real battle, you mm -hmm. learn actually the art of war. And so this, this story of Exodus is actually a story of God forming his people through the feedback loop of sufficiency. Yeah. Only God can provide manna in the wilderness, the quails in the wilderness, daily sufficiency. Time has stopped, it feels like, and we spoke about it before, because I think part of the invitation in that moment is to actually be sufficient uh, uh, on God. So I would encourage leaders, recalibrate. You're no longer just dealing with the world of wants. Look, it's still there. There's still elements that's there. People are still buying stuff online. It's still going to be there. But in the midst of this, there's an invitation for people who generally have need. Yeah. I think it's only going to increase. Um, this is not going to go away quickly. Even once the, I mean, I read, a, I read a report out of Wuhan yesterday and where they're starting to open stuff up and restaurants are coming back online. People don't want to go in. Mm -hmm. There's profound social scars. There's grief. There's lament, which is just coming to the surface now. Um, it's not going to go exactly back. Like it will. It could be five, six years. There could be some elements where normality in some ways returns. Well, I think the world order will be different and social things will change. But in this moment of challenge and wilderness, how do we step into sufficiency and pointing those in need to their deepest, truest need in God? And lastly, I would say, I think the other thing in this, what is the ultimate clincher in this is as a leader, you're leading people into a new reality where it's not just wants, it's needs. But what are your needs? What if in the last season you were affirmed, lauded, encouraged when you simply gave the people what they wanted, not what they needed? And what if now you've actually lost the ability to do that because you can't give them what they really need? We can respond. We can drop rice off. We can provide funds for people who have lost the job. But actually with the invitation this moment is what's really happening at the moment is what if we can't be the hero anymore? What if in this moment of needs, God's actually releasing the ministry to those in need yeah. who then can be the people of God in the wilderness, beggars who have found scraps of bread showing other beggars where to find bread? That's powerful, Mark. Thank you. Pleasure.